Welcome to China Tech Talk, the, well, not even almost weekly anymore podcast about technology here in China. I am John Artman, editor-in-chief of Techno.com, joined as always by Matthew Brennan, founder of China Channel. And so before we get into it, I just want to make a, a quick plug for the TechCrunch event that's coming up in the beginning of November. We are going back to Shenzhen for yet another conference. This time it's going to be bigger and better for a few different reasons. Number one, we are going to, for the first time in TechCrunch China history, we're going to have a hardware startup battlefield featuring uh, local and international startups during the uh, during the conference. We'll have uh, some pretty good judges for that. And also, the TechNote English team is going to be organizing an Emerge side stage. And so we did Emerge back in May, and then we're bringing the same commitment to quality and the same commitment to depth for a different set of topics. We're going to be looking at China, India, C2M, and uh, mass customization, as well as cloud gaming. And if you aren't already subscribed, make sure you do sign up for TechNode's newsletters. We send out several every week, if some free, some if you're a member. But definitely sign up for our filtered uh, free weekly, free daily newsletter, and you can you can stay up to date with all that we're doing in the next few weeks and months. All right, plug over, Matt. We haven't done this in forever, and I'm, I'm I feel a bit rusty. We've had a break. We've definitely had a break. But hey, I think that's that's fine. There's good reason for that. We did, you know, I did have a conference to to do, which took over my life for a while, and uh, but now <laughs> it's uh, back to normal, I guess you could say, and uh, summertime as well, or kind of end of summer, I guess. Yeah, but it's good to be back, John. It's good to be back, and uh, I think we're going to start up again doing more regular uh, podcasts. So. Yeah, exactly. I think there before before China Chat, which was really really good, by the way. I ended up writing uh, a column based on what I learned, uh, not just the China Chat, but also some other conversations and events that I went to. But I have to say, I, for me, it was uh, extremely educational. I think it was a little bit different from the year before last. I didn't go last year, but the year before last, there was a bit. Uh, there was some panels, there was some presentations, and a, a bit a bit of a, a bit of a mix. Whereas this year, it, it felt like. It was mostly presentations, and and to be honest, I think mm. that was a really good way to do it because it's like panels are. I think panels are good. I mean, personally, I like doing panels because I enjoy uh, conversation. But I think that that for China Chat, having the presentations was worked really really well because it just felt like you know two afternoons of of like a like an intensive. Digital marketing in China in China workshop. I think I ended up taking maybe like four or five four or five pages of notes uh, throughout throughout both days and um, and yeah. Anyway, I thought it, it was really really good. Yeah, I mean the thing about panels is they're easy if you get very important people, right? So like they've got they're very they don't want to prepare a presentation. It takes time and effort to to do that, right? So most conferences prefer panels. I think for that reason, they're just easier to put together. As as someone who does presentations and panels, you know, panel you don't need to prepare that much, right? It's, you can just go in and and maybe you need to know the questions in advance, and and that's about it. Uh, just check that they're okay and they're not going to ask anything, you know, out of the scope of your of your uh, mm-hmm. knowledge 
but with uh, presentations, take a lot of effort to do a good one. So I think that's why. But the, at the conference, yeah, uh, I, I also have to do a presentation each year. I only do a short one because I'm not really there to, um, I'm more there for hosting. But this year I wanted to cover a topic um, which I felt is actually a very interesting case here because uh, the topic we're going to cover today on this podcast is private traffic or private domain traffic. It's it's called Su Yu Liu Liang in Chinese. It's a red hot topic. It's been a red hot topic in China digital marketing and internet sector for the past half a year, at least. But there's been almost nothing written about it in English. There's there's been a very big disconnect uh, between what people are talking about in in the local market and then what what people are covering around this. Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for that, but um, yeah, it's really not received the level of coverage that it should have. Leading into it, I was expecting, oh, you know, any 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 week, do I really want to cover this uh, in the conference? Because I, I'm sure other people will pick up on this and start writing about it. And uh, but actually not. So uh, even even today, it's still got uh, relatively little. It seems to be a very local topic. Maybe it's a little bit difficult to understand, um, and certainly it's very uh, you know sort of marketers are very interested in it. And I think anyone who's in that space will be certainly wanting to know about it. But perhaps uh, it's got less appeal outside of the digital marketing as well. Yeah, I just I mean my my, my sense is that uh, it's it's a slightly esoteric, and so coming coming from a for, as as a media worker, it's one of those things where I think that sometimes it's hard to to find an angle for something like this. You know, yeah. Like I mean, so like if we were doing like an explainer about something, then then that would that would make a lot of sense. But it's esoteric. It's 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 very niche. But then I think that as we'll discover in this conversation, that it's not too difficult to understand. Or at least find some parallels in 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 the Western world, and also I feel like this this the topic of private traffic really kind of connects to an episode we did uh, earlier this year uh, with with Rio when we were talking about the death of the open web, and I think that th- that these mm. two kind of topics are really kind of just part of part of part of one one bigger larger trend, which is exactly that, which is moving away from the open web and you know, having people, companies, marketers, salespeople owning traffic rather rather than having it something kind of like like in the West where you have Google and you have your AdWords and and uh, and, and all that stuff. But before we get really too deep into it, you know, we do want to make sure that uh, that our, our our listeners are on the same page. So, um, so Matt, how would you define uh, private traffic? How do you, how do you explain it to people? Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a term that's really only used in China. Western digital marketers don't really use this term. The closest term that is used outside China is the concept of owned traffic. Um, so, owned traffic when when we talk about that in in the, in the states or in Europe, for example, uh, we're typically talking about things like email lists or website traffic. The idea that you're not on a platform. Right, you're not your Facebook page. Right, essentially is uh, controlled by Facebook, and the traffic you receive to that uh, Facebook page, you're at the mercy of of uh, that company and, and their algorithms in order to reach your followers. Right, so typically you're you're going to have to pay to reach your followers. Uh, so that's not owned traffic. Right, 
own traffic. The best example is an email list, right? So your use email is considered to be a, a direct link to your follower, uh, to, to your fan. And as we've seen a big revivance of this, right? I mean, uh, TechNode is doing, uh, putting a lot of effort into email, right? Um, and we've seen a big revival of uh, email being considered a really good channel to reach people because it's direct, there's no gatekeeper, and you can have that uh, relationship. And, and people are, are paying for subscriptions now, right? It's becoming more and more common that uh, people find it acceptable to pay for a, an email newsletter, yeah. right? So this is very much something that uh, I guess our listeners are familiar with. Can, can I, I just want to interject. And you have personal experience of John as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, I think that, so in, in, this is actually really parallel, and I didn't think of it uh, until, until you mentioned it just now, but in the West, at least, uh, it's been described as uh, the dark forest of the internet. So where you, you can think of like uh, public social media, like Twitter or, or Facebook, is kind of like the, the, the bright forest, if you will, or web pages and things like that. As as Andrew Shore discussed in a in a in the opening presentation uh, for China Chat, you know all of this it, it, like messaging uh, in general and social media in general is moving more and more towards private conversations, private group chats, and then email is a yeah. is is a is a big part of that. And so uh, so for us, I mean, you know, as as publishers. We're kind of we're trying to follow what what where the market is going, right? Where people are more interested in in receiving newsletters. It's a good way as a reader myself. As it's a good way to cut through the noise, but still make sure that you're keeping up to date. And especially like you know, so so I subscribe to, for example, uh, Ben Thompson and Bill Bishop. Ben Thompson is great because that way I can keep up with what's happening in the Valley as well as take a critical eye towards what's happening there. And then Bill Bishop is great because he aggregates all these all this different news and information and interjects his own opinion every once in a while into that. So it's a great way that I don't have to be on Twitter. I don't have to be following you know 5,000 WeChat groups to, uh, to be staying up to date, and which I think is the real kind of... Um, the real value for a lot of people, but but Matt, I also had a question. So you mentioned that you know this idea of of own traffic or you know not having it on owned by another platform. So for for like a brand or for a marketer, why why is that important? Like why is it important to like own that traffic and not have it owned by uh, the platform? Yeah, I mean the example of Facebook is a, sort of a classic one where. Um, organic reach on Facebook pages used to be when brands started out investing into Facebook pages, you know, you used to be able to reach a considerable proportion of your of your fans or followers without paying Facebook. Today, organic reach, if you have a million followers, you're probably going to be able to organically without paying the platform to reach maybe a thousand of them, maybe ten thousand. If you're something in that region, it's it's super low. And in China, this trend is exactly the same. Uh, Weibo is a great example. You know, if you want to organic, you could have a, there's plenty of brands, uh, celebrities with you know very large followings on Weibo. And if they don't pay Weibo, but they just want to put out a message to their fans and followers they're only going to reach a tiny fraction of them. And what they pay platforms over time to reach their own followers increases. 
So actually in China, when we talk about private traffic, it's mostly a trend that we've seen play out strongest for e-commerce, for small and medium-sized e-commerce merchants in particular. So they are typically paying Alibaba. They're paying for traffic on Taobao. Or they might be paying Jingdong. Or they might also be paying Pindodo. It works the same for pretty much all of those platforms. Uh, if you want actually anyone to see your products and come to your store, you end up paying the gatekeeper. So every time you want people to come, so actually you keep paying the gatekeeper again and again and again, right? There's no, uh, there's, there are ways to get people, once they've bought something on your store, to maintain that relationship on the platform. But they're not ideal. It's sort of against the platform's interest to allow you to do that. So it's a great model for Alibaba. I mean, this is really the cash cow for Alibaba, right? This is how they make all of their money. It's, it's called core core commerce in the financial filings. And we, you know, when we talk about a company like Alibaba, a lot of the news today is around you know things like Hermar supermarkets and new retail, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, that's sort of almost uh, a sideline. It's um, almost a distraction in terms of like the, the core of Alibaba is that merchants in China need to pay Alibaba if they want to get traffic to their store. So those those rates are just going up and up and up over time. The trend is super clear. And as a merchant, you're just being squeezed further and further every, every year, um, giving a larger percentage of your revenue to the platform. Uh, I think you know we had Eli on the podcast before, right? He he described it. I remember like saying, uh, if you buy a, a Tmall store in China, you're essentially buying a store that's underground, and if you don't put any budget into promoting that store with the platform, nobody will come to your store. It's basically hidden. I think that's that's kind of true. I mean, unless someone actually is searching for your brand name, searching for your for you specifically, they're never going to find you unless you pay the gatekeeper. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit about YouTube. So when it comes to like social media or content, I used to at least uh, watch YouTube a lot. Don't 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 watch it as much as I used to. But one of the things that I noticed is that some YouTubers started talking about how YouTube was changing the discovery algorithm, basically. And I noticed this in my own experience as well, where YouTubers would say, you know, subscribe, but then also hit the notification button. Because YouTube, earlier this year, they changed their recommendation algorithm, focusing a lot less on the channels that you subscribe to and just recommending content that's more similar to basically what you just watched. Or, or what you've been watching over the last um, the last couple of days, and this is this is so interesting because you know as you were mentioning, you know it's becoming more like on Weibo, for example, it's becoming more expensive to reach your own followers, which is crazy if you think about it. Because like Weibo and uh, Twitter, and Twitter is kind of starting to to implement these kind of recommendation algorithms uh, recently. They were got a lot of flack for not having it before. But you know the the premise of these platforms was that you know you 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 follow certain people and you receive you receive their updates and so to hear that you have to pay <laughs> to actually you know uh, reach the people who already opted in to follow you sounds sounds pretty crazy. Yeah, but it's the reality. I think it's been the reality for quite some time. It's so there's a conflict from the platform. The platforms in, got incentivized to do to increase engagement. 
right? Every platform wants people to spend more time on that platform. They're going to see more ads, right? And you want to increase your daily active users and your monthly active users statistics. And then every platform is under pressure to monetize. So the, it's quite clear that there's a conflict there because if you use algorithms to just surface content that's from anywhere and you can pick from all of the content on your platform and just show the most relevant trending content that's hot today, actually that's usually a better user experience than showing the content which the user has subscribed to previously. So this is great. It, well, it's not great, but it's uh, it leads to a, typically a better user experience. But of course, the actual people who invest um, in building channels on those platforms, it's really a bad trend for them. And so, yeah, we're gonna see, we see this in the East and the West across all these platforms that there's this conflict between content creators or brands who are on the platform and the actual platform themselves. So the idea of private domain traffic is very similar to own traffic, you want to get a channel that belongs to you, that to reach your fans, to reach your followers, that's free, you don't pay a gatekeeper, you have direct access, and you can use it repeatedly. So in, like I said, in the West, that would be email would be the best example. But also your 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 website could be considered that. I mean, I think there is a gatekeeper there. Google typically is the gatekeeper for the open web. But it's uh, Google does reward quality content over time. Uh, so this is concepts that you can actually get very large amounts of organic traffic without paying Google if your content's good. And again, like Technode's a great example of that, I think. I mean, I'm, I imagine Technode.com gets a lot of organic traffic from from Google without you having to pay anything. Yeah, we don't we don't we don't pay Google anything. We have we have thought about it just because it would be good to increase our reach and that's uh that's that's one way to do it, but uh we have some pretty good SEO juice on on Google. And and as you said, they they actually do, I mean, I I have a lot of bones to pick with Google, uh but I mean, in when it comes to search, they still do a relatively good job. They are they are surfacing a lot more ads when when yeah. you search these days at the top, which is kind of annoying. But uh, but they recently uh, made a change to their SEO algorithm that uh, prioritizes original content, uh, and so I think when it comes to to news and information, they really are taking it seriously in terms of trying to. Uh, I think on the one hand, dealing with the the fake news backlash, uh, but then on the other hand, really mm-hmm. trying to serve their their users in terms of of surfacing relevant uh, content from the open web. One of the things that they're doing, and that TechNote is probably going to be involved with, so in cooperation with WordPress, they are launching something called called Newspack. It's all part of the the Google News Initiative, where they are spending real amounts of money trying to help small and medium publishers who are actually producing uh, usually very niche content, but also high quality uh, that they think um, needs to be encouraged and needs to be supported. So I think on that front, you know, Google Google is doing a a, a pretty a pretty good job. Um, but let's but let's kind of come back come back to China. So I guess you know Matt walk us through how how the private traffic kind of let's call it workflow. How does that how does that look? Um yeah, a typical example uh, the example I brought up um in the conference was a brand called Perfect Diary. And actually they're there's they're basically a, a classic case study for private traffic. 
in when when Chinese people are talking, when Chinese marketers and e-commerce brands are talking about this concept, um, they're usually consider, uh, considered to be one of the best uh, examples. Perfect Diary, for people who don't know, is actually a cosmetics brand. Uh, they're from Guangzhou. Uh, they're relatively new and they're really, really killing it in China. Um, by some measures on Timor, I think their traffic is now larger than like L'Oreal and like very well-established old cosmetic brands that you would uh, typically expect to be dominating uh, a place like Timor. This new upstart, relatively new upstart. I mean, they're, they're, I, I, I got a feeling they're about four years old, uh, but uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But they are, they're using all these kind of new uh, marketing tactics. You know, L'Oreal being a Western brand would be, most Western brands look at private traffic and the sort of techniques I'm about to describe as, as, as risky and they're a little bit hesitant to use it. But Perfect Diary has really been fully embracing this. Uh, they're known for having uh, over a million followers on private traffic channels uh, in China, what they call a private traffic pool. And that those followers are actually, those million followers are basically all on WeChat personal accounts. So the, the sort of the... Um, the classic way to do private traffic in China, given that email is not an effective channel to reach most Chinese people, given that the open web is perhaps it, you have to pay by due. So whereas we've just been talking about Google being relatively open in China, uh, Baidu is pay to play. So if you want to drive traffic, it doesn't really matter how good your content is, Baidu, unless you pay them, you're not going to get any serious traffic from Baidu. And the open web is just less important. People don't go to browsers as much in China. Um, it tends to be an app economy, uh, very mobile centric. And so that leans, leans itself to like WeChat being the best place to do this. So when we talk about private traffic in China, usually we're talking about adding followers onto a private personal WeChat account, which has a limit, right? WeChat accounts, you can't add like a million followers onto a personal WeChat account, the limit's about 5,000. So you've got, you've, you've, you've only got 5,000 per account, and then you have to open a new account. So it's a very, very manual, annoying process if you're doing this without some technology to help you. If, but there are brands doing this, for sure, where they are using you know, phones with multiple WeChat accounts on one phone, there are ways to do that that are legal. You know, uh, you can actually, there's many Android brands that allow you to mirror apps on your phone and have like two versions of, an, of the same app on your phone. That's totally fine. You can actually log in and log out of different accounts through one, through, through one WeChat app on a phone. That's also uh, totally fine. And um, you can register different accounts under different phone numbers for one person in China. Um, so there are ways to to do that, which are quite manual and a little bit awkward, but um, it's possible for one individual to have multiple WeChat accounts and run those from a phone and still not be doing anything dodgy, not using any special software to, to hack uh, the system. But it's incredibly manual. It's incredibly time consuming to do that. And so, but that, that's what brands are doing. That's, uh, that's what Perfect Diary is doing. And once you have them on your personal WeChat account, then you add them into a WeChat group. 
again, groups also have a limit, right? So you've got uh, the, the WeChat group limits 500. So if you were perfect diary, uh, you add 5,000 of your uh, followers from uh, onto, onto an account, and then you would put those into groups and you'd be running multiple WeChat groups. And in those WeChat groups, you're, you know, basically creating a sort of vibe of uh, an environment where people can learn about your brand. So you're posting useful information in there. You're definitely doing content marketing, but you're also uh, encouraging sales and people to make repeat purchases. So for Perfect Diary, what they do is like um, when you actually buy one of their cosmetics products uh, and they send it to you. So you're typically buying that on, on Taobao or Tmall. And then when they actually send it to you, there's a card they send along with it with uh, an, an offer that's fairly attractive and most people would be interested in where you can get a discount, you can get a code if you add them on WeChat and you add the personal account on WeChat. The personal account doesn't go to the brand, it goes to this uh, Xiaowan, this sort of imaginary woman. She, like She's a figurehead, as it were. Like She's not a real, or she is a real person. The picture's a real person, but like the name is is made up. But uh, it feels like a real person. It's meant to feel like you're connecting with this uh, with this woman who is also using these products and representing the brand to some extent. And she adds you to the group, and uh, you you know she will be the one posting this uh, information to you. And I'm in these groups. I've checked it out. Um, it's quite interesting what they do. There's all different types of content in there, and there really is a sort of like a vibe that they create in the group, a sort of atmosphere of sharing. Uh, tips and hints, and I, did, you know, people share their own pictures of what they've done with the makeup, etc. In there, and so there is a, a community atmosphere, you know. And this is quite like well known and an established marketing tactic. I think that that people use uh, for all different kinds of things. Like again, like Technode's a good example, right? Technode has a uh, WeChat groups, right, where you guys share your articles, and there is a community built around those WeChat groups, right? Yeah, exactly. Because you know, traditional publication models don't really work on on WeChat. In our, in official accounts are a real pain in pain in the butt. Let me tell you something. I mean, the back end is just uh, just horrendous. I mean, the amount of time that I've spent on just like individual posts that take us, you know, two minutes to publish on WordPress can take, you know, up to 30 minutes just to get ready on the official account backend, which is one of the reasons why we stopped updating our official account often. We got, we, we built out a mini program. And uh, so on WeChat, what we do is we just share the, um, the the article, both a URL to our website as well as the the mini program itself, and and it's and it's worked out pretty well. It's it's really amazing. Like you know, you make it you make it easy for people, and so for us, I mean, like what what we care most about is eyeballs, right? And so um, and we found that the WeChat group, uh, the friends of Technode WeChat group, is the best way to do that because it's all opt in. Instead of instead of pushing our content to some nameless mass of people at some point for some reason decided to follow our official account, people are 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 actively opting in to our WeChat group, and and every once in a while, less so these days than than in the beginning, but every once in a while, I'll go through and I'll just remove people from from the group, people who haven't participated in, in quite some time, and I'll usually give a notice, say, hey, you know, if you, I'm gonna I'm gonna be deleting people. From the group, if you want to stay in, you know, change your name to something or include something in your in your group group uh, handle, and so then you know, give people some time to do that. 
give them some notice, and then then start taking people out once that uh, once that timeline is up. And so again, it's a great way to uh, to make sure that 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 the opt in that people are still opting in that they're still interested that they're actually engaging with us and uh, and and with our content. But this is this is kind of the interesting thing. I mean, so you know, I was doing some research uh, for a piece on uh, ed tech that I did maybe about a month ago or so, and because uh, I was looking at what ByteDance uh, is doing in that space. And Matt, maybe maybe you and I can record an episode about that at some point. I think it's super interesting. But it's really interesting because basically what you're describing, what Perfect Diary does, is actually really similar to what uh, one of the the ByteDance apps does as well. And I can't remember which one it is. They have <laughs> they have a bunch. But basically, it was really similar, where you sign up for this course, and the course is uh, it can be one on one, or it could be you know like a group course or something like that. But a lot of the actual interaction happens on WeChat, and so what you do is you you add a certain person similar to uh, Xiao Yuanzi, and then they they. Then they start talking to you and saying, "Hey, you know, you, you can try this or you can try that." And of course, at the end of the day, they want to get you into um, a group chat. I never went that far, um, just because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be, uh, you know, bugged all the time by uh, unsolicited marketing messages for English courses <laughs> that I don't need. But I think it's it's but it, but it's really really interesting because WeChat it really is taking up more more space in terms of. I think transactions uh, for Chinese companies, and this reminds me of a piece that we published back in uh, 2017, where uh, Eva Yu uh, she pub- she did a profile on a company that was uh, out of China China Accelerator, and what, one of the most interesting things about this company, and it's very similar to how you describe what Perfect Diary does. But at that time, they weren't using private traffic. But what they did was almost all of their marketing efforts were outside of WeChat. So they were using Douban, they were using Keep, they were using Weibo. I mean, basically any any possible social media platform that had a relevant audience, they would put all of their, their marketing into. But then the actual conversion, the actual transaction would take place on on WeChat uh, through the 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 Weishang. And this is a this is Matt. This is what I wanted to ask you about is you know, and I think that even in your presentation, you 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 made this comparison. So like, what is the difference then between you know back in 2017 where people were pushing uh, conversions to WeChat on Weishang, and now with the the private traffic? What's the difference between between these two uh, phenomena? Yeah, um, so Weisheng is uh, the sort of similar to this, but actually different in, in, in quite a few respects. But the, the key difference, I believe, is many programs have just made e-commerce on WeChat, particularly in WeChat groups, much, much more viable. And they've really helped to make that user experience work. And so... It, a lot of this private traffic stuff is about repeat purchases. So you're making your initial purchase on an e-commerce platform like like Tmall, and then you're driving this follower, you're incentivizing this follower to get into this group, add you on a personal account, join this group. And then within that group, the mini program allows you to make the repeat purchase really simple and fast. Whereas maybe a couple of years ago before mini programs really took off in China, you would have to do that for a web page or you might have to do it for a direct transaction. It was still possible for sure, but 
it was nowhere near as, as easy as it is now uh, with you know what Perfect Diary does, all of these transactions that they're repeat purchases that they're driving through WeChat groups is all done on mini programs. So they can just, they have the freedom there to build whatever they want in terms of content and create a, a, a basically a website, a web page there through the mini program that completely customizable, really simple to build and fast and easy to change. From the user experience, it's really, you know, tap, 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 and, and I've bought it. So that's that's a pretty big deal. When it comes to conversion, that stuff is really important. Mm. So so when it comes to the, the to the mini programs that let that that's let's stick with Perfect Diary. So the mini programs that Perfect Diary are using, those are the ones these are mini programs that they've developed themselves. You know, because like uh, JD, for example, and Pinduoduo, uh, if you're a merchant, they can they can help you build mini programs. So is Perfect Diary, I mean, is all the all the MPs, that's kind of in-house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're, yeah. they're keeping yeah, all of us? I mean, it's basically, uh, you know, it's, it's under their brand, built by them, um, but they're big enough, right? So they need to be doing everything in-house for this, I would imagine, rather than using third-party services like you just mentioned. And then, so they control the data, they control, they can control the user experience, like exactly how they, they, they wish. And they have complete control over pretty much everything that's happening once the uh, once you click through onto that mini program. So, and then the mini programs are, are great for social sharing as well. So, like you can do a lot of flash sales, you can do a lot of group buy, um, all of these models which are quite flourishing actually uh, in the past few years of uh, social e-commerce and content-driven e-commerce are all possible. So you've really got a very sort of flexible environment where you can take these people who've bought your product before, right? You've got a group group of 500 people who are all very qualified. They've all purchased your products before. And then you can at them, you know, you can send a message that everyone in the group will, will have to see because you're, you're, you're the host, you're controlling it and, and send them a, a mini program, which, you know, can be tailored towards the people in that group and exactly what they've they've purchased before because you'll segment these groups based on pretty much like what what products did they buy to actually convert over into WeChat and then your you know best practice would be a tagging as well so you'll tag the actual people in the group based on did they what have they bought before what have they said you know how engaged they are etc etc all these different activities it's also possible to to do tagging and then one-on-one send them information as well outside the group. So there's a lot of possibilities here. In fact, there was a report, um, one of the few resources in English about this topic was um, put out last year by a Boston Consulting Group and Tencent, a, a report called Winning in the Age of Social Media. And it actually describes three different models uh, in detail that around how this can work. And actually, it's funny, the report doesn't even mention private traffic as a term because when it came out last year, actually, this term hadn't yet been formed. But actually, it's it's definitely talking about this concept. Um, that's exactly what it's covering. And so, yeah, it's there's different models for it. There's ones that are a little bit similar to Weisheng, where it's, you know, you're just pushing content to them and hoping that they buy. Um, there's ones where it's a bit more like you're providing expert advice uh, to the followers um, around a topic. So that would lend itself towards 
products where it's a higher price point and there's more education that needs to happen in the consumer in order to make the purchase. A good example would be something like uh, mother and baby WeChat groups, uh, where there's a lot of questions from from new mothers. Uh, and then you can actually have someone running that group for your brand and hopefully providing some useful advice in there as well. And then there's one even there's a third model, which is more, sort of personal companion, which is even more. It's like a sort of one on one relationship, less group orientated, but more like a concierge service. And that works well for really high priced services and goods. And, you know, an example of that would be maybe education, you know, which is a pretty high ticket price industry, typically in China. And uh, you might be you know, adding them into WeChat and keeping that relationship and cultivating that customer on a one on one sort of relationship rather than a group, which is extremely manual and extremely time consuming. But if they're you know, making a sale of signing up for a university in the UK and you're the agent, that's an extremely high ticket price. Or if they're buying a house or a car, you know, that can still make a lot of sense to do that. Yeah, that's the thing about about a lot of this private traffic that I was uh, really surprised by. Or at least I think if you think about, as you were saying, amount of work that goes into providing a more personalized kind of, let's call it even maybe intimate service to people via uh, WeChat, whether it's uh, one-to-one or, or groups, it's it takes a lot of work. And so I was really surprised to learn that a lot of this stuff, like Perfect Diary, for example, it's still manual. Yeah. You know, I think that there there are some ways to kind of create efficiencies, but like we're not talking about chatbots, right? We're not talking about, you know, any kind of new technology or like kind of super innovative technology being applied to actually make this work. At the end of the day, it's still, you know, humans working working on these behind a lot of these accounts. And so as you were saying, I mean you can have multiple WeChat accounts on one phone, but then you also have, you know, one person managing multiple multiple different phones. And so they might they might be managing, you know, I don't even know Matt, maybe you can fact check me on this, but I mean like 20 different phones with like five different accounts on them at at one time. And so you still so these brands and like Perfect Diary or or another another service company, you know, they're still they still have to have people on the back end actually typing out this stuff and and forwarding it around and kind of creating the the content itself. And so it's still very very uh human intensive. Yeah, I think Perfect Diary is probably automating a lot of this and has structures in place to make it a little bit better than what you've just described. But uh, having said that, for small e-commerce brands, yeah, I imagine it probably is uh, quite similar to that. In fact, you know, we've got, uh, I've seen uh, videos of similar things to what you described, you know, one e-commerce brands where they've got workers, you know, each with six or eight phones and they're managing WeChat groups manually in there to take orders. It seems... uh, very intensive work, actually. But uh, the thing is, uh, if you're using a, a chatbot, let's say, if you're using some kind of automation in order to run personal accounts on WeChat, that's against the terms of service. So it's possible, and people do do it, for sure. It's risky, because uh, actually WeChat will shut those accounts down over time. There's a sort of game of cat and mouse between people who want to automate personal WeChat accounts and open up millions of of WeChat accounts and run those with software 
in order to do marketing, do various activities. It could be, you know, simulating engagement on articles, uh, which people will pay for, brands will pay for. It could be using private traffic. Uh, there's multiple ways that you can monetize a large number of, of WeChat accounts, which can be controlled uh, remotely through software. And this business typically called uh, click farming um, is, is quite well documented. I think last year in 2018, there was actually quite a lot of it. It was quite a hot topic in, in China. Uh, this year it's cooled off considerably because uh, WeChat has taken such strong measures against this kind of behavior. And I think that's actually one of the reasons maybe our listeners might, some of them have, uh, have definitely reached out to me to ask this kind of question. Because in the last uh, year or so uh, for WeChat, it's become very difficult to actually open and verify a foreign WeChat account in certain countries. And the reason for that is um, because of this private traffic trend where if e-commerce brands, uh, if click farms want to uh, you know, um, open up 100,000 WeChat accounts, the easiest way to do that is, um, is to open those accounts outside China using a, 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 in a place where, where Tencent doesn't have that much control. In China, every, every, phone, every WeChat account is linked to an ID in some way. Yeah. Right? Uh, so uh, today it's very difficult to actually do this in China without linking it to a personal ID card. Something similar happened to uh, my mom recently or earlier this year where I finally, finally, finally convinced her to download WeChat and then make an account so that, you know, it would be easier for us to communicate, but then also for my wife to share updates and pictures with the kids because I'm notoriously very bad at, uh, at doing that. And then, you know, a week goes by. Everything seems kind of normal. We hadn't really been using it very much. And then I tried to send her a message and, and, and uh, WeChat said this, this account has been suspended. And it's like, what the heck is going on? But I think this is true for a lot of different services in China and if you think about it from a from an enforcement perspective it makes so much sense because you know for as you mentioned everything is tied to an ID number and these ID numbers are unique they can be verified somehow whereas you know i could probably just make up a random string of you know 6 to 8 numbers and letters and put them in as, as, as my passport number and Tencent or whoever else, they really have no way to verify whether or not this is, actually, this, is, this is genuine. So because of that, and because people do take advantage of that in China, they have to be uh, pretty strict about how they, um, how they enforce and make sure that people aren't engaging in fraudulent uh, activity of some kind. But also, Matt, I wanted to ask, so when it comes to private, private traffic in general, so not necessarily kind of bot-driven you know, personal accounts, but just like private traffic in general, I mean, how, how, do you, how does WeChat and Tencent, how do they think about this? Is, is this something that, that, you, that they encourage and that, it's, that they think is good for them, or is it something that they're trying to maybe control or, or clamp down on? Yeah, so good question. I think from Tencent's perspective, they are they kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. There's two conflicting things. Um, so one is that actually this trend is pretty good for Tencent uh, because, as we mentioned earlier, the goal for these brands is to drive repeat purchases on mini programs typically. That's great. Tencent actually makes money from that, right? They, could, they take a small cut when you use WeChat Pay. And it hurts Alibaba because now, uh, you know, that's not 
a channel which they can control, and it reduces uh, the these e-commerce brands' dependence on that ecosystem. They don't need to pay Alibaba so much. So that that trend, in terms of, and and also from the user perspective as well, pe- the more people become familiar with mini programs and buying on mini programs and how they work, that's absolutely awesome for Tencent. That's exactly what they want. So that part's great. And they definitely would love to encourage that. On the other side, this behavior is quite clearly, uh, you know, against terms of service. It's kind of when you're talking about automating millions of WeChat accounts, this is illegal. This It's quite clearly uh, going to lead to a poor user experience. People are going to get frustrated. And you do see that around uh, users, people complaining that they get you know, brought into groups which they don't know anyone in and suddenly they're being sent marketing messages and being spammed. This can have some very serious consequences for user experience. I think as non-Chinese uh, WeChat users, uh, not typically non-Chinese WeChat users are really not exposed to this kind of behavior that much at all. But when you talk to local Chinese, pretty much everyone's had some kind of bad experience on WeChat with people trying to market to them. And a lot of this back in the day was uh, uh, the Weisheng phenomenon, which are individual sellers who were you know, using WeChat moments and, and, uh, other, and, and WeChat groups as well to, to, to sell products that maybe they've brought abroad or something like that. But there's a long, there's many, many years history here of like people feeling that WeChat is a place that has been overly commercialized by individuals trying to sell stuff to you. And it's really something that people don't like. And then, you know, there's using things like WeChat Pay with these millions of fake accounts. If they're running transactions through those in some way, you know, that's risky for WeChat Pay. That is, you know, that could be used for money laundering. It could be used for gambling. Uh, they they really have no control over it once now you've got third-party platforms automating all this behavior on the platform. There's definitely risk there as well. So there's these two conflicting elements. And overall, it seems to be that uh, Tencent is taking steps to, to, to clamp down on this behavior. And that's why, as uh, foreign WeChat users, uh, your, your story about your mother there, John, is, is pretty typical. A lot of people are discovering now that non-active WeChat accounts outside China tend to get shut down and uh, re-verifying them is a is a, an annoying and sometimes complex process. But I think I can understand why Tencent's doing that. And uh, certainly for them, that's also got a negative of, you know, reducing the number of people who use WeChat, which is typically not what a platform would want to do. Yeah, exactly. To, to a previous point that you were making, there was a point last year where I started to get random people trying to add me as a friend. Like, I have no idea who they are. They, you know, they're, they have some weird kind of flower stuff in their name and some emoticons and emojis. And it's just like totally random. So what I did is I disabled account people being able to discover my account through my, through my phone number. The number, the number of random uh, friend requests uh, dropped to zero. Basically, but I think that does that does validate what what you were saying before, and I guess I so I, I think you know we're we're coming coming close to time, but um, 
But you know, we're talking about you're talking about uh, ten cents is is this is good for ten cent in a certain sense because it's uh, allowing merchants to not be dependent on platforms like Taobao. So I guess I mean, like, is Alibaba are these kind of big platforms that are being affected negatively by private traffic? Are they doing anything about this? Is there any response from from them that we can see? Yeah, um, I think Taobao is is taking steps to enable this kind of behavior to happen on their platform as well. And so there are sort of ways that you can um, subscribe. uh, Basically, you can subscribe to shops and there's a feed where you can, uh, in in Taobao, where you can actually just see updates from those stores which which you're interested in. That's not algorithmically curated for you. Well, interestingly, there's one point, uh, you know, for, I mean, you could do a whole episode on this, but um, it's Taobao in general uh, and Tmall, by far the largest e-commerce players in China for uh, marketplace-driven e-commerce. Today, uh, most traffic is actually coming from content, algorithmically suggested content and uh, live stream and, and not from search which is a really interesting phenomenon that you would not expect that, right? Because the traditional e-commerce user experience is, you let's just say Amazon as an example, you go to Amazon and you type what you want into that search bar and then select from what it, what it gives you. It's a, it's a search-driven experience. What we're seeing in China is today already content and algorithmically suggested uh, feed, which if you go to Taobao today, and it's mostly, uh, actually, it's a feed, uh, you just scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, and it suggests uh, items to you. And then there's a lot of content uh, built around the experience of like video content and live stream in there as well, that Taobao has actually made a very successful uh, transition into embracing content-driven e-commerce. And today, it's uh, it's a case where that's where the majority of purchases are taking place. So, Taobao's doing a lot, actually. Uh, Alibaba's doing a lot to sort of embrace, try and embrace this trend. However, um, it's kind of fundamentally against their business model, right? Like, yeah. if you, that's the problem, is that they are incentivized to monetize this um, in terms of they control, they completely control all of the traffic on, on, on those apps. And they how they actually make their money and they're under pressure from investors and shareholders to, to, to do more and more of this is to squeeze those brands, is to get them so that they have to pay the platform for, uh, somehow in order to drive sales. If they offer channels which don't, which are free, that's going to hurt their business. It's, it's pretty much, there's a very difficult, you know, way. It's pretty impossible for them to get around that, I feel. So yeah, there's, it's not too, I mean, they, they, I don't want to mislead you into thinking Taobao is doing nothing and Alibaba is not um, trying to create, there's actually a, a lot to talk about there in terms of how uh, e-commerce is changing on those platforms. But there, there still remains this fundamental conflict there, I think. Whereas WeChat and Tencent is, uh, has a different model and they're, you know, they're happy with just taking market share away from from Alibaba, basically. <laughs> exactly, but I think it, it, it's it's all part of a much broader trend. I mean, I think in in, in Alibaba and Taobao, they're relatively. I mean, 
<clears throat> so they, they they jumped on board like the content powered e-commerce when when live streaming was relatively mature. I mean they they own a large stake in Weibo now, uh, and and Weibo um, they have their Ijebo as well as a few other video products. Taobao has its own uh, live streaming platform as 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 you mentioned. And so it's it's just but it's just really interesting because like the 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 killer monetization model for China has become e-commerce. You know, you take things like Xiaohongshu, Moguzie, and a few other ones, and a lot of these companies they actually started off as kind of like recommendation or social media or something like that. And then at one mm. point they they were they were finding it very difficult to monetize until they realized that well let's just start selling stuff and, and figuring out how we can make money from from selling stuff through our KOLs and, and users and things. And that's proven to be like the way to do it. And as as we as we discovered uh, at China Chat as well, there's all these you know super super niche platforms, social media platforms that are monetizing through e-commerce as well. Uh, and so and and KOL marketing. And and content marketing, and so it's really fascinating to see how all of that is playing out. And it's you know it's becoming more private, it's becoming more niche, less accessible, uh, less searchable from the outside. But at the end of the day, I mean that seems like kind of how the whole internet is kind of going. Where like in the West, people are getting super tired of Facebook. They're getting very tired of the the, the toxicity on on Twitter, and so they're moving more and more towards these private group chats, mostly, and then newsletters and all these other things. And so it's super interesting to see how you know the Chinese internet, which is isolated for various reasons from the rest of the internet, is still kind of moving in parallel. Or at, I mean, and so it's hard to say. You know, is is a trend in China being kind of copied or learned from in the West, which I do think is happening. But it's hard to say. You know. You know, is is that actually happening in this case or not? But certainly, it's just super interesting to see the the, the parallels and how more parallel they are than 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 they're not, given the amount of of, of isolation between uh, between the two ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so we're going to uh, to leave it there. I think that there's uh, a lot still to kind of uh, to talk about, but I think we would be probably just going into the weeds and going off track. So we're going to leave it there. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to uh, become more visible to other iTunes and podcast listeners who are interested in tech in China. And as always, if you want to stay up to date with technology in China, the best way to do that is to subscribe to Technode newsletters. You can do that at technode.com/newsletters. Mm-hmm.